I want you to think back to when you were a kid. So the number one question every adult seemed to ask you whenever you find yourself in a conversation with an adult. And if you can't remember that long, it's been, you know, decades. I want you to think when you find yourself talking to a kid, what's the question you feel like you have to ask them? The question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, we, we go, yeah, of course, that's the question everyone asks. Have you ever thought about what an absurd question that is to ask to a child in elementary school, right? Hey, I know the world is scary and you don't understand things and you're like confused about a lot, but tell me your entire future right now. You know, it's like, how do we expect kids to know the answer? They're like, what do you want to be? And we put so much weight on this question. Like, like there's a right answer and there's a, right, a wrong answer and you better say a good answer to that. And so kids usually say something like, I don't know, like an astronaut. Like that sounds like a pretty cool thing to say. But, but even that is, is a bit humorous when you think about it. I came across a quote uh, from an author named Lindy West, and she was talking about this uh, tendency of us to, to ask kids this and for kids to reply, and I thought it was humorous. Here's what she said. Who decided that astronaut would be a great dream job for a kid? It's like 97% math, 1% dying, and 1% eating awesome powdered ice cream. If you're the luckiest kind of astronaut ever, your big payoff is that you get to visit a barren, airless wasteland for five minutes, do some more math, and then go home. Ice cream not guaranteed. <laughs> like, yeah, what a, what a cool answer. But here's what I wonder. How many of us, if you could travel back in time, you could listen in on the, the young version of you answer that question. How many of us are doing the job we said? When you had said, oh, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be this. How many of us are going, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Or how many of us would go, oh, yeah, I, I don't do that at all. I, I, I've gone totally away from that. Today we're concluding a series that we've been in this month uh, called Missing Pieces. If you've got your journals, I encourage you to get those out. Uh, hopefully you've, you've held on to them throughout the series. And we're in week four today if you want to go and you'll see a spot to take notes. If not, just get something to take notes with and, and open up your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 6. Acts is in the New Testament, so if you've got a physical Bible with you, go ahead and get that out and, and go to Acts 6. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, I encourage you to get that out as well, and you can scroll to Acts 6, and we're going to read that together in just a moment. In this series, we've been looking at those things that, that it's easy to think, if I just had that, my life would be complete. If I had a better version of that, my, my life would be complete. And we've been exploring how none of these actually complete us the way that, that we secretly think they might. Now today what I want to talk about is this concept that we have of a dream job. That if I just had my dream job, then everything else would fall into place. And I don't know what your dream job might be, if you could list it out. I, I looked on the web to see what, what do people talk about. Here's some of the, the, the top ones. A movie critic, you know, just get paid to watch movies all day. This one surprised me. A private island caretaker which I had to look it up, which I guess is apparently you take care of someone else's, you know, expensive island that they bought when they're not there, and so you get to live on a private island the whole time. Uh, a Hollywood actor or actress, professional athlete, or a superhero, right? I mean, how many kids are like, I'm going to be Batman. That's what I'm doing when I grew up. And, you know, and, and you grew up as a kid and you have all these, and, and I confess to you, none of these would be mine. Uh, mine would be some type of uh, cheese chef. Uh, I think that would be amazing. If I could just make things out of cheese all day, that would be my dream job. I don't know what you would answer as to what your dream job is, but most of us would say, oh, I'm probably not doing it. I'm probably not doing that. Well, what's the criteria? How do you know if you have a dream job? Here, here's a list I made. Um, it never has any bad days, right? That's a dream job. It never has any bad days. It never causes you any anxiety. You never worry about your dream job. It surrounds you with no difficult coworkers. 
Some of you are like, I'm out, not me. It pays ridiculously more than you could ever imagine. And a dream job completes you, right? It just makes you feel whole. Everything in your life makes sense because you have that dream job. Well, I suspect today most of us go, oh, that's not me. I'm not living that life. And, and, and you might think this is a missing piece in my life. If I had this piece, everything else would, would be better. So we're going to talk about that today. I want to look at Acts chapter 6. We're going to see a problem that the early church has and how they solve it. And if we're paying attention, it's going to sound weird to us today. It's going to sound a bit odd to our ears. And so I want to unpack this with you. In Acts chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so the widows are getting overlooked. They got a problem the church has to solve. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So here the disciples are trying to solve a problem. The church is growing. There's more and more people who are looking at it, who are taking interest in it, but the needs are growing as well and they cannot keep up with it. And so here they realize we've got a problem that we can't solve. We don't have enough hours in the day to take care of all these people. So they have to strategically think this through. Now, at first glance, you might say, okay, well, there seems to be two categories of work. You have spiritual work and you have mundane work. You know, you have the work that everyone might want to do and the work that we just have to do. And, and it looks like this passage shows them both. Notice their phrase, it would not be right for us to wait on tables. They need to focus on, on prayer and on preaching. And we might go, oh man, I wish I had a job like that. You know, the good stuff, the, the really spiritual, that would be amazing, but, but I have the other kind of a job. I mean, is this, is this what it's setting up here? Now, most of, of you uh, don't have a job that are, you know, involves prayer and preaching as the main focus. I actually do. So I know what it feels like to have a job like that. I also know what it feels like to go home and have my wife expect me to take out the trash, okay? So like I know all the ends of the spectrum of that, of, of the highs and lows of all that. And I, I was thinking about a story that happened to me recently, just a normal day in my life, but it illustrates, I think, some of this tension here. Uh, about a month or so ago, uh, after one of the services, my wife, Michelle, wanted to meet with some ladies in the church. And so she said, hey, I'm gonna meet with them. Can you go get the kids and I'll meet you in the lobby afterward?" So I finished preaching the sermon. I go out to the children's ring. I'm going to get my kids, you know, meet my wife in the lobby, get back and, and preach again. And so I switch gears. You know, I'm in preaching mode. Then I switch gears. I'm in dad mode. I'm going to go get the kids. And I round them all up. We got five of them. So it takes me a little bit. So I round them all up, get them all in the lobby. Where's my wife? She's not there. And so I'm standing there. I'm going, okay, I've got to contain five kids under 10 and keep them into a little tight area until their mother arrives. And so I'm waiting there and I'm looking around and, you know, different people are talking to me. Hey, Pastor, good morning, good morning, good morning. You know, meanwhile, I'm like, do I have, you know, one, two, three, four, five? Just trying to make sure I've got all five of them, right? When you have five, you have to count. And, and so I have all of them together and we're doing great. And as I'm looking around for Michelle, I hear my oldest say something that you never want to hear in this moment. He says, Dad, Aiden's throwing up. Aiden's our four-year-old. And so I looked down, and sure enough, he is foaming at the mouth. Uh, but here's what was weird. It wasn't vomit color. Um, it was like, like neon green and blue and purple. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, my brain is trying to register 
what's going on? I'm thinking like, did you just create a new disease that like the world has never seen? Like what is happening to you right now? And so I know I'm trying to figure out like, what do I do? What's going on with them? How do I help him? And, and so we're trying to figure all this out. Well, then my nine-year-old figures out what's going on. And he goes, no, he ate my fizzers. I don't know what fizzers are. I don't know what's going on. And so I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, dad, I had this, this little pack of fizzers. And, and there are these things you put into a water bottle that changes the whole bottle, you know, a different color. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, Aiden ate them. So I'm like, this is not good. And so after I figure out, all right, those probably are not something you're supposed to eat, you know, I look over and meanwhile, and my four-year-old is vomiting the rainbow. You know, it's just blue and everything. I mean, just all over himself. I mean, he's confused, like what's going on. And, and so I'm trying to clean him up. Meanwhile, people are going, hey, good morning, pastor. Good morning. I'm like, not now, okay? I'm like, got an emergency here and I'm getting paper towels. And, and it's the whole thing and other kids are running everywhere. And the whole time I'm thinking, where is your mother? Like, this is not the agreement that we had. And so it is overwhelming. It's crazy. Finally get him cleaned up, figure out he's going to be fine. I think it's non-toxic. So far, he's doing well. And, and so we figure out, all right, he's going to make it. So I'm like taking him, trying to figure out, finally find my wife. And I say to her, hey, no big deal, but Aiden swallowed a bunch of fizzers, threw up a rainbow. Here's the deal. You know, they're back to you. But here's the point. I was so excited. I'll confess to you. I was so excited to hand them off to their mother and get back to preaching. I mean, like, it, it was just a, a great thing. And here's what I can tell you, okay? It is far easier for me to be a good preacher than it is to be a good dad. It's far easier for me to be a good preacher than it is to be a good husband. And, and so there's a part of me when I read this story, I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like, I would rather spend my time on that because it's easier to do. It's easier to get the results of that. And, 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 you know, and, and in one sense, it's a lot more fun and glamorous to do that than it is to do some of these other things. Now, you might read the story and go, all right, well, bummer for us. You know, is the goal that you get to be a preacher and you get to, you know, spend your time on that and the rest of you are doomed? Is that the point of this passage? Well, notice the criteria that the disciples use when they pick who's going to wait tables. Okay? So not the criteria of who's going to be a disciple. When they decide, all right, we're going to do prayer and we're going to do preaching and we need seven people to wait on tables. Notice what they're looking for. There's two things. These people must be full of the Holy Spirit and they must be full of wisdom. Have you ever met a, a food server? I'm just going to say, I don't think those are requirements for the job, okay? I, I, it seems like a little bit of overkill to me. I, I used to be a server. I know what's involved, right? Um, it just seems like overkill. Why do they have to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom? That's what they're looking for here. And you begin to realize, wait, maybe something else is going on. Maybe there's something else that, that is not the way we might normally think of it. We'll keep reading in verse 5. This proposal to assign seven people this job pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen. Now remember his name. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also six other guys. Verse 6. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Again, does this strike anyone as a little bit odd? They not only find these guys who are full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, but then they lay their hands on them, pray over them, and commission them to go and wait on tables. Now, in case you're going, what's so weird about that? Tell me the last time you were in a church service where they brought up a group of people and said, we want to commission you to go and be the best food servers this community has ever seen. 
You ever been a part of a service like that? I, I never have. Right? So we go, oh, yeah, I guess that's a little bit much for that. Like, we, won't, we don't normally tend to do that today. Now, even more interesting, there is an Old Testament parallel to this story. And in and, and both the words that are used and the structure of what happens, uh, the parallel happens with a guy named Moses in the Old Testament. Now, Moses is a, is a huge central figure of the Old Testament. He's the one that leads the people of God out of Egypt. He leads them into the promised land. But then, right before they get there, he has to pass the baton of leadership to a guy named Joshua. And Joshua is actually going to be the guy that leads them into the, Old Test, or the, the promised land. And so Moses gives all this authority, all this leadership on to Joshua as the next guy. Notice how it's, it says it in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. This is the, the passing of the baton from Moses to Joshua, which is a huge deal in the Old Testament. And the parallel to this is the disciples assigning seven guys to wait on tables in the early church. Now, again, if you're paying attention here, you're going, that seems a bit weird. Like that role seems way different than the role of these seven guys who are asked to wait on tables. But notice the, the results of what happens. After they commission these guys to wait on tables, notice what it says happens. There's three things. It says the word of God spread. Okay? It says the number of Christian disciples increased rapidly. And it says Jewish priests became followers of Jesus. Could it be possible that if we want to see those same kinds of results today, that we may need to adopt some of the thinking that got them there? If we want to see God do the same thing in our midst today, could it be possible that maybe we need to adopt some of the methodology that the early church used when they thought of the people in their community? See, I would say it's very different than how we think of it. We tend to, to compartmentalize our lives. So you might think, oh, well, there's a, 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 a personal version of me and there's a work version of me. You know, and the personal version of you is what happens on the weekends and on the evenings when it's your time. That's, that's the real you. Then you have the work version of you, and you have to do that version just to, to get to the other personal version. Now, if you're wondering, well, I don't know if I do that, or I don't know how I navigate it, here's an easy way to, to know. How do you feel on Sunday nights? On Sunday nights, when the weekend comes to a close, when you begin to think about waking up on Monday morning and whatever you're going to go do on Monday, how do you feel? Do you dread it? Do you have this like weight on you on Sunday nights of like, oh, another week, another week of that? Do you, do you have this sense of I just wish the weekend was longer? I wish I didn't have to do that. Or do you have an excitement? I cannot wait for tomorrow. I can't wait to wake up and, and, and I get to do what I, what I get to do. See, that, that tells you a lot about how you navigate it. And for a lot of us, I think we, we go, no, those are totally separate things. Uh, what I do on my time, what I do at work, they're, they're completely unrelated. I like the way that, that John Acuff says it. He's an author. says, bad employees make horrible dreamers. You can't loaf on your day job all week and then expect to magically throw the switch on the weekend and hustle on your dream. The things you do on your day job tend to follow you home. Ever notice that? Right? You, you want to keep them compartmentalized, but they just kind of bleed into one another. And as much as you try to keep them separate, what happens during your day job, during whatever you spend the majority of your week doing, it is going to affect you. Now, I, I hate to, to be the one to break this to you, but there is no perfect dream job out there for you. 
And in case you're going, man, that's a bummer. Last week I told you all that you didn't have a soulmate and you guys took it well. So I feel like let's build on that. You guys can handle it. There's no perfect dream job out there for you. Now, there's certainly things that you're better at than other things. There's things that you would enjoy doing more than other things. But there is no perfect, elusive job that if you had that, it would fully complete you. And yet, I think we are more convinced than ever that there is, and we are trying to pursue it. We are chasing after it. They have done studies that the amount of, of change of jobs is increasing, that we, we, we look for jobs more than we ever have before. Here's a couple stats. Millennials are on track to surpass four job changes by the time they are 32. Four job changes by the time they're through, and then they keep going, right? Because they already, that's what they're used to. In pursuit, in pursuit of this great, elusive dream job, it's estimated approximately a third of the workforce now changes jobs every year. Just think about that. A third of, of everyone who's working changes jobs every single year. Why? Maybe it's because it was the right time, but I suspect some of it is because there's, there's that dream job out there. And I got to go find it. And we keep pursuing it. We keep pursuing it because we think that'll be the missing thing. Now, here's what I would say. Uh, if you want a different job and you think you should have a different job, that's fine. It's okay to change your jobs. But if you're pursuing it because you think it's the missing piece, it's never going to complete you. Now, there may be times if you were to pray about it that God may say to you, I want you to stay in your job even when you want to go. You may go, I I'm done with it. I want to be done with it. But God goes, no, no, I want you to, I want you to stay. There may be times when you're comfortable and you're like, I just want to stay here forever. And God says, hey, it's time to go. It's time to do something else. But the point is you can do either one of those when you realize this isn't a dream job. This is just a way for me to be faithful in all that I do. Now, last week when I'm talking about soulmate, I said, it's okay to want to be single. It's okay to, to want to be married. You can be a healthy version of both. But if you are looking for a soulmate, you are acting as if there is a perfect soulmate out there for you, it is going to be hard to be a healthy single person. It's going to be hard to be a healthy married person. That whichever camp you're in, the best way to do that is to understand that Jesus Christ completes you, and therefore you don't have to look for this other person. And the same is true when it comes to a dream job. When you understand I am complete because of Jesus, I no longer have to pursue my work with this expectation of it's going to complete me. It's going to provide that missing piece for me. And this affects you even if you're looking ahead to your career. You're a student. You're going, hey, I don't have a, a job yet. You're, you're looking ahead. You want to go into the workforce as a healthy person. Give up the notion of a dream job. There is no perfect, complete job for you. You, you can go then pursue it in a very healthy way. And maybe for you on the other end, you, you're looking back on your career and you're retired now. Well, you still have to figure out what are you going to spend your days doing. Uh, the healthiest way to go, well, that wasn't my dream job and I'm not ever going to have one. So what could I do now? See, if we want to be healthy in what we spend our time doing, we have to let go of this notion of a dream job. Here's the way I would say it. Waiting for a dream job will cause you to miss the opportunities in front of you. When you have this idea of someday I'm going to get that promotion, someday that perfect company is going to hire me, someday I'll get that corner office. When you have this mentality, you will always miss the opportunities in front of you. And some of you, you've, you've got your dream job, what you thought was your dream job, only to realize it didn't complete you. And there's a, a new job or, or something else that you're looking for. And instead, we, we miss all the things that are happening in front of us. God's like, no, no, no. How about you look at it differently, stop chasing this dream job, and realize how he wants to use you right now. 
I want you to think about what you spend your week doing. Okay, now, if you've got a, a job that you go to work, maybe you have a job description and they've given it to you. Maybe you don't have one. Maybe, you know, you're retired and you spend your days doing something else. Uh, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. Whatever you do, I want you to think about Monday through Friday, what do you spend your time doing? And, and, and make a mental, you know, job description of what you, what you spend your time doing. And then I want you to add one thing to it. And so all of us could have this. We all have a, a mental job description. Add one bullet point to that list that would say this. Live out my faith to every opportunity in front of me. If we all approach that, our job descriptions would look radically different. We could go around and we can compare. Oh, I do this, you do that. But if we all added, live out my faith exactly, you know, the best I can with every opportunity in front of me, it would completely change everything. And I know a number of people who do this. They, they approach their work with this mentality. How can I live out my faith? Let me give you a few examples. These are all real people that, that I just think illustrate what I'm talking about. There's one guy who, uh, when he was going into work, he noticed that everybody arrived at the office at 8 a.m. It's when the, the office officially opened and everybody got there at the same time. And so he thought, what if I came in at 7.30? And every day I came in at 7.30 and I walked around my office and I prayed over each person's workspace. He'd go to the cubicles and he'd spend a few moments praying over each cubicle space for the person who's going to be there. He'd go to each office door, he'd put his hand on it, he'd pray for the person who's going to work in that office. And he'd start every morning like that. They, they didn't know he did it, no one knew. He would just come in half an hour early. He'd just spend the day praying over it. And that he felt like it was the best way to start his day. Well, then he noticed how God began to do incredible things in, in his office. Incredible things with him and his other coworkers. And, and these conversations and these events that would happen. And he went, wow, that was amazing. And he attributed it all back to the fact that he had invited God specifically over each of those people. Over each of those relationships. It was a way to make the most of that opportunity. Or I know of another guy. He was working on a project for, for months with this other coworker, and it was this major project they were going to submit to their boss together. And while he took a vacation, his coworker submitted the project to their boss without him and took all the credit for it. And you can imagine the feeling of that. And, and so he finds out about this on vacation, and he's just fuming about what he's going to say to this coworker and how he's going to tell his boss exactly what happened. And as he was praying about it, he sensed that God told him, I don't want you to say anything. He said, God, i gotta, I got to fix this. I've been wrong. Now, this is not okay. And God just said, I, I don't want you to say anything. So to pray about it, he goes, okay, God, I'll let this one go. So he comes back to work, doesn't talk to his coworker about it, doesn't talk to his boss about it, just keeps his head down and keeps doing his job. A, a, a while later, his boss calls him into his office. And he's like, all right, I got to know. He's like, got to know what? He goes, how come you let this other guy submit this project without you and take all the credit for it? His boss goes, I know that you worked on it with him. And I know that he didn't give you credit. But I was waiting for you to come and say something and you never did. How come? He says to him, well, uh, I prayed about it. And I felt like God told me not to say anything. And so I decided to let it go. And his boss said, you know what? I'm, I'm starting a brand new division of our company. I need someone to run it. I need someone of character that can run it. I want you to be that guy. He ends up getting this incredible opportunity. All because he handled his opportunity in, in a unique way because of the way God had led him. Well, let me give you another guy. The guy who's a rocket scientist. That's actually a real job, not just something we, we joke about. <laughs> this guy's a rocket scientist. And he's talking to other rocket scientist coworkers, right? And he begins to share his faith with them about how Jesus makes sense to him. And he says it in a unique way, the way a rocket scientist would say it. And this other rocket scientist goes, wow, I've never heard it like that. That makes a ton of sense. And he gives his life to Jesus. All because this guy saw an opportunity in front of him. You see, how would God use you? 
if you were to look at what you're going to do Monday through Friday and go, hey, God, what opportunities are in front of me? Now, here's the reality. Let me make this clear. This may never change your circumstance. I'm not giving you a way to get promoted, a way to make more money, a way to get that corner office. That's not what this is about at all. It can change your perspective. It can change the way you feel on a Sunday night. Instead of that feeling of dread of what's coming, you could have a sense of excitement going, I can't wait to see what God is going to do tomorrow. I can't wait to see what God is going to do this week if I'm faithful to meet him in the opportunities before me. But perhaps the best example I could give you is the guy that we've already read about, this guy named Stephen. See, we know of Stephen primarily in scriptures, not because he was a, a, a guy that waited on tables, because of what he did in the next chapter. You got your Bibles open, so I want you to go to Acts chapter 7. I want you to see what, what we know this guy primarily for, this guy named Stephen, who wasn't picked to be the preacher, wasn't picked to be, you know, focused on prayer. He was picked to wait on tables, and yet he saw an opportunity before him, and he began to tell others about his faith. He began to tell others about what God had done for him, and it created quite a reaction to that. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, after he finished up his dinner shift at Sherry's, I added that last part to see if you're paying attention, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, side note, someone pointed this out to me. Uh, when you hear like in Hebrews, uh, Jesus is always sitting down because his work is complete. Here it depicts Jesus is standing. He is standing, he is risen to honor what Stephen is doing. Standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What you just read, what is known as the first martyrdom. Stephen was the first guy to be killed for his faith in Jesus. Stephen, the guy that wasn't picked for preaching and prayer, the guy that was picked to wait on tables, became the one who had an incredible opportunity, who modeled what it meant to pursue Jesus even to his final moments. And we're still talking about him today. I'm so glad Stephen didn't wait for his dream job to come around. Didn't wait, oh, someday I'm gonna be picked to be a preacher. Someday I'm gonna get picked to be that guy that gets to spend time on prayer. And until then, I'll just wait. No, he didn't, he didn't miss the opportunities in front of him. He went, okay, God, I see I have a conversation here. I wanna be faithful to that. And as a result, we are still telling his story today. How would God Use you. If you were just to commit all that you do throughout the week, the majority of the time that you spend, you say, hey, God, I, I know this might not be exactly what, what I would want to do, but I'm going to pursue this, looking for opportunities to live out my faith. I began by sharing that kids often want to be a superhero when they grow up. I want to go back to that as we close. You ever wonder why we're so fascinated by superheroes? You ever wonder why there's a gazillion of these movies that are always going to be made? What is it about us that is so drawn to superheroes? Is there something we look at and we go, I want to be that one or that one or that one. I wish I could have that kind of a, an ability. We, we long to be strong enough to be one of these. But do you know 
You know what kids don't ever think about, or I've never met a kid that thought about? Hey, I want to dream about a world where you don't need superheroes. I want to dream about a world where, where there is no evil, where everything is just good. I want to dream about that world. No, that's not what kids dream about. They dream about being strong enough to face the evils in the world. They dream about being the kind of person that could stand in the gap and say, when there's something that is not the way it should be, that they would have the ability to stand up to it and make things better for others. That's what kids dream about. And yet along the way we go, oh, superheroes aren't real. So therefore, that's not what we're going to do. So here's the reality. God could snap his fingers in a moment. And he could enforce his will upon everything. And he could take all evil, all evil influence completely out of the picture. But in his sovereignty, he chooses not to do that. Instead, he invites people like you and me to display the kingdom of God in our midst in the face of evil. To say, I'm going to use people like you. I'm going to give you opportunities that you could manifest the kingdom of God if you would be faithful to that moment. And that is how God is going to change the world. Not through fictional superheroes. To people like you and I who realize the opportunity in front of us. Because we're not waiting for a dream job to complete us. We're looking for ways that we can give what we already have found in Jesus to the blessing of others. You know, so often people come in to church, and this is uh, especially true of the American church, of, hey, we, we have pastors, and pastors do the ministry of the church. And some people even say this, well, isn't that why we give to the church? We're paying pastors to do the ministry. Here's the reality. Pastors will not be the ones to change the world. This won't ever happen that way. Pastors are here, and our church is here, to equip you, to empower you, to encourage you, to cause you to dream about the opportunities in front of you and what you could do if you would step into it, if you would be faithful. We're here to get alongside of you and go, you can live out your faith in radical ways. I might never be the guy that could convince a rocket scientist to believe in Jesus, but you might be. How many people... You get to come in contact with Monday through Friday. And they might not be the people you wish you came in contact with, but how many people do you get to, to rub shoulders with and go, wow, God, what are these opportunities? How could I see this differently? And what if you decided instead of waiting for some dream job to come around, you would make the most of every opportunity in front of you? God would use people like you and I to change the world. Let's be a church like that. Let's pray together. Jesus, give us the eyes to see what you see. Where we might look, situation, and long for a different job, long for a different situation, you see it as incredible opportunities to manifest the kingdom around us. God, may we see with your eyes that where we go on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday is not inconsequential. It is incredibly significant the people that we have access to, to live out our faith. There's a world of people who are broken and hurting and looking for something more. And we could be the ones to point them to you if we were just to be faithful to these moments. God, would you give us eyes to see it? Would you give us a courage to live it out, to stop looking for some missing piece out there and to realize what you are doing right here in our midst and to extend that to others. Would we be the people that change the communities around us, that change the culture around us, not because we're superheroes, because we're faithful to the opportunities you put in front of us.
Could we be a church like that? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.